Oh, wait a minute. I was gone. Welcome back. Thank you. I've been away on vacation for the last couple of weeks. It's so hard to get away, you know, September to May, so I try to cram all my vacation in the summertime. So I feel like I haven't seen some of you in weeks. So um, it's great to be back. Um, we're in a series called uh, Captivated, Worship Jesus, Be Like Jesus. And I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 5. We'll be looking at the first 15 verses. Now, if you have um, the Version app, I want to encourage you that um, we're going to scroll just beyond verse 15 because I want to show you a couple things. But if you have your Bibles open, then look beyond um, verse 15 as well because I think there's something interesting to see. So stand with me, if you would, please, to um, John's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. You know, there are three Jewish holy days, and this particular one, is the Feast of the Tabernacles. The Jewish culture celebrated God's provision while they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles is about. God's provision in hopeless and helpless times when you feel very small and surrounded by a lot of challenging circumstances. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the Pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay down in the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew that he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping bag and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, You can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, The man who healed me told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who said you, to do such, who said you could do such a thing, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, Now you are well, so stop sinning or something else, or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now we're going to stop there, but I want you to notice something. The story continues. If you look from verses 16 all the way down to verse 47, Jesus gets into a tussle with the Pharisees and religious leaders. And the tussle is over what is the nature of God? And who is God really? And Jesus comes right out and says, I'm God. I'm the Son of God. Now, sometimes people think that Jesus was crucified on the cross because people misunderstood who he was. That's not true at all. 
The religious leaders clearly understood what Jesus was saying, that he was equal with God, that he was the Son of God, and that's why they crucified Jesus, is because they considered it blasphemy. The reason why this miracle is the most important miracle of Jesus' work, did you know that? This is the most important miracle Jesus ever did. You know why? Because from this moment on, the religious leaders made a decision that they were going to kill him. This was the tipping point miracle. Up to this point, Jesus had been just a a real burr under the saddle, an irritant. But from this moment on, they said, we can't have this. Let's bow our heads together. Jesus, um, would you take ancient words from an ancient text in another language, in another culture, and would you make it real to us? Particularly those of us today who are struggling with seemingly hopeless situations that make us feel powerless and helpless. There's got to be somebody here who's looking at their finances thinking, I don't know how this is going to work. Someone who is in a marriage that is less than fulfilling, and their heart's desire is to have an intimate connection, but they've been married for decades and they've given up hope that they and their spouse will ever be on the same page. For somebody who's struggling with a chronic illness or a mental affliction like stress, depression, or anxiety. And they're wondering, when, oh when, will God come in and help me? Would you speak to us today? In the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to start off heavy right away. A couple weeks ago, a very famous Christian who pastored a megachurch, who is well known in the Christian community worldwide, did what the Bible calls apostatizing. And after splitting up with his wife, declared, I am no longer a Christian, I'm renouncing my faith. Joshua Harris. It's well known. It's okay to use his name. A week or so later, a songwriter from the Hillsong Network named Marty Sampson wrote in an Instagram, I'm losing my faith. And he went on a rant of how inconsistent the church was, and he didn't 
he was just losing his faith. And it got me thinking, how do you end up going from being an all-in follower of Jesus Christ to renouncing your faith? The easy thing is to say, well, they were never really Christians to begin with. But that's not true. Because Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter, talks at least three times warning against people who lose their faith, who were once all in. And Paul in that letter to Timothy specifically calls out a guy by the name of Hymenaeus. It's just got me thinking, like, how do you go from there to here? Perhaps it is because of deep, hidden emotional struggles that lead up to a crisis of faith. Perhaps these two men, or perhaps people you know, or perhaps you're here today and you're in church, but you're really going through a crisis of faith, and you're really saying, well, I I don't really know if Jesus is real. And can I really trust the Bible? And what is God really like? And you got all kinds of questions. How does that happen? Sometimes it's just a crisis of emotional struggles. Sometimes it's putting feelings over truth. Another Christian in a rock band called uh, Skillet, John Cooper, is the head of this rock band called Skillet, and he put out a Facebook post responding to the two apostasies. And the title of the post was, What in God's Name is Happening in Christianity? And he goes on a rant against the rant of Marty Sampson. It's fascinating to read. But John Cooper's point is, is that a lot of people get off track spiritually is because they're putting their own feelings above truth. Well, I just don't feel this way anymore. Well, when did our feelings become God? That was Cooper's point. Perhaps it was disillusionment with the church the reason why these two men apostatized. Um, there's nothing more captivating than when the church is acting like the church, and there's nothing more discouraging as when the church does not like act like the church. For example, a few weeks ago, in response to the political environment where a high government official told some Congress people, if you don't like America, you can leave it, Friendship Baptist Church in Appomattox, Virginia, put on their church sign, America, love it or leave it. Thank you very much. Friendship. Baptist church. Perhaps it was theological disillusionment with God. You ever ask yourself the question, why why hasn't God intervened yet? Why has God allowed this to occur? Where was God when? I don't pretend to understand what these two guys were going through, but I do know this. And I know this without even talking to them, and I know this about you and everybody else you know who is struggling with faith. Somewhere along the way, 
they lost connection with the head, which is Christ. Somewhere along the way, they cooled off to the point where Christ became a concept, not a person. And they started to genericize Christ and started talking about faith. But just remember, the Christian faith is nothing without the person of Jesus Christ. Long way around the barn, I've shared all that to say this. That's why we need this series, Captivated. Because everything in our culture woos us away from Jesus. We have so many trinkets. We have so many little things that we are able to run after. We're so distracted that what we really need is the course correction of bringing us back into a simple relationship with the person of Jesus Christ and then letting everything else fall into place. Now, if there was ever a man who had a right to be disillusioned about his faith, about the church, about whatever, it was the man who was paralyzed at the pool of Bethesda. The ruins of the pool of Bethesda have been excavated, and you can see them today. There are five colonnades leading down into a deep pool with many steps on them. I have stood there and looked over the pool of Bethesda. Interestingly, the word Bethesda means house of mercy. That's where we get Bethesda, Maryland, or Bethesda Hospital in Florida. It's the house of mercy, but in Jesus' day, it was the house of misery. Because hundreds of people gathered around that pool, and they were all disabled, they were all blind, paralyzed, sick, diseased in some way, and it was really like a massive waiting room outside a doctor's office. Hundreds. And what were they waiting for? Well, a legend had developed that an angel came down and stirred the waters and made them bubble up. And if you were able to get into the water when the water was stirred, you would be healed. Was that true? No, it wasn't. It was a legend. When you're desperate, you'll do anything. In fact, the newer Bible translations, the New International Version, the New Living Translation, the old versions used to say that an angel would come down and stir the waters, but the new versions, which are based on better translations, just simply say that the water was stirred or the water bubbled up. Here's what really was going on. The Pool of Bethesda was fed by intermittent springs down below, and so on occasion these springs would let loose, and of course water would fill up into the pool, and they would all bubble up, and people standing by the pool or sitting by the pool would just go, it must be an angel, and they would run over and try to get into the water. Now the paralyzed man had been plagued with a physical disability for 38 years, and he had presumably been at the pool if not all, at least most of those years. Now, we know from a conversation from verses 16 and beyond that the man was worshiping in the temple once he had been healed by Jesus, and 
Jesus found him in the temple worshiping. And so Jesus said to him, hey, stop sinning or something else worse may happen to you. So we know that the, the reason for this man's disability was based on some sinful behavior in his past. And Jesus must have known about that sinful behavior. But nobody knows what it is. You know, maybe he had a, uh, you know, a story as a thief. And maybe one time when he had stolen something, he was running away and tripped and fell and got run over by an ox cart. You know, nobody knows what it is, but the reality is, is that he was paralyzed, he was disabled because of his own circumstances. We also know that he had given up, that he would ever be healed. And the answer to Jesus was, I don't have anybody to help me get into the pool. I'm just stuck here. That's what makes Jesus' words to the man seem odd. Jesus looks at the man, first words out of his mouth are, would you like to get well? They feel harsh or tone deaf, like Jesus needs a sensitivity training course. Like everybody knows that you don't say to a disabled person, hey, would you like to get well? We wouldn't mind if the man posted a, rate, a, a Facebook rant. You'll never believe what happened to me today. Some guy asked me if I wanted to get well. Really? Hashtag jerk. But there was something about the way that Jesus asked the question that invited the man to probe his own heart and desires. We can imagine him reflecting for a moment and thinking, do I really want to get well? I mean, I say I do but do I really? Why am I still here at this pool knowing I'll never be able to get into the water? What does that say about me? Why haven't I gone home to be with my family? If I'm paralyzed and can't get up, why I can be paralyzed at home. Why do I have to be here? Have I become emotionally paralyzed? Am I stuck? Have I gotten used to the attention I receive from others because of my disability and prefer that attention over not getting noticed at all? Now, by asking the question, Jesus was really giving an invitation for the man to renew his faith and to renew his belief that God could do anything. In other words, Jesus was saying, do, do you have it in you to believe again? Are you willing to risk hoping again? Or are you afraid of getting your hopes up and then being dashed and being let down again? And the man responded with a well-worn answer. I, I can't surf. I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water bubbles up, Someone always gets there ahead of me. To which Jesus very simply says to the man, stand, take up your mat, and walk. 
No fanfare, just do it. And the man gets up, and he walks, and then he goes right to the temple. Now, what should have happened, to be honest with you, is what should have happened, because remember, there's hundreds of people around. The man doesn't even know it's Jesus, by the way, so don't even tag the man with he didn't have enough faith. He had no faith. He didn't even know it was Jesus. It's just a guy saying to him, do you want to get better? And a guy saying to him, stand up, take up your mat, and walk. What should have happened when the man got up, revival should have broken loose right there in Jerusalem at that moment. People should have like, like crowded around Jesus. Can you do it for me? 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 The religious leaders should have run to the pool of Bethesda and high-five Jesus and revival should have broken out and everybody should have run to the temple and praised God. But you know what happened, right? The guy gets up and he takes up his mat and he walks and he goes to the temple and the Pharisees, the first people, the religious people, look at him and say, hey, what are you doing carrying your mat? That's against the Sabbath. Do you know that it was against the, against the Mosaic law to carry more than two figs? You know what figs are? to carry more than two figs in your pocket. If you carried a third fig, you were breaking the law on the Sabbath. How crazy is that? Because the Pharisees are more concerned with keeping the rules than seeing people experience God and a touch from the Lord. So I've been thinking this week, why did John put this story in his gospel. What are we supposed to take away from it? At the end of John's gospel, he says that if all of the things that Jesus ever did, if all of the things that Jesus ever said were recorded in a book, there wouldn't be enough books around because Jesus did so much. So what that means is, is that when John writes his gospel, just like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when John writes his gospel, he's got a treasure trove of things he could put in his gospel, but they actually narrow it down. So John is only telling a few stories of the multiple hundreds of stories that Jesus did. So I got thinking this week, why this story? This story actually extends beyond the healing of the man. We think that the main point of John chapter 5 is the healing of the man. It's actually not. The main story follows the healing of the man. It's in verses 16 through 47, the rest of the chapter. And what is it? The rest of the chapter is Jesus taking the religious leaders to task and telling them how hypocritical they are and how they don't represent God at all and how he must be about the Father's business. And Jesus purposely put himself in a position of saying, the Father and me, we're on the same level. And that's why this is the tipping point miracle in the Bible. It was after this that the Pharisees said, no more of this, we're killing this guy. So, The question that you and I are supposed to ask from this story is this. What kind of a Savior is Jesus? And what kind of a God is He? And here's the answer. Number one, Jesus is drawn to helpless people in hopeless situations, and He cannot rest 
until he takes action. This is called mercy. Remember I said earlier that Jesus showed up at the Feast of the Tabernacles? The Feast of the Tabernacles is a a holy day, a holiday for the Jewish people that is still celebrated today that represents God's provision for Israel when they were completely helpless and in a hopeless situation, wandering in the desert for 40 years with neighbors all around them that were ready to destroy them and how God provided for them until they got to the Holy Land, crossed over into the Holy Land, and they were able to enter into that promised land. This miracle is actually... In microcosm, Jesus saying, I'm God, I'm doing the same thing. Just like God provided for the Israelites way back when and took care of helpless and hopeless people, God is taking care of you and he's taking care of me. The point of this story is John wants you and I to see that Jesus notices you. And Jesus is drawn to you. And when you go through hopeless and helpless situations, Jesus is right there. And his timing is perfect. Pastor Ann mentioned it earlier, Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus quotes out of Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. This was Jesus' mission statement. So if you were to ask Jesus, take a microphone like man on the street, and go up to Jesus and say, hey, so why did you come to earth? Jesus would have quoted this scripture, and he says, to loose bound people up, to go to prisons and release them, and to minister to poor people and meet their needs. Interestingly, scholars think that um, John intentionally left out the paralyzed man's name because he wants us to see that he was part of the faceless, nameless, massive people that you and I pass every single day that we take no notice of. So we've been on vacation the last couple of weeks. One of the things we like to do on vacation is to go to Philadelphia. We go to Reading Terminal Market. You know, we saw Eastern State Penitentiary. Blow your mind. Okay, it's fascinating. The most influential penitentiary in the history of the world is right here in Philadelphia. It's based on repentance, penitence, penitentiary, penitence. I can't tell you how many homeless people I walked by that I didn't even really see. Do you know what I'm saying by that? You know how easy it is to walk by homeless people and not even see them? I mean, we see them, but we don't see them. Jesus sees them and notices them. Now, you may feel like God has forgotten you. You may feel helpless. You may have given up hope. But that's not true. Those are just your feelings talking. Jesus notices you, and he never takes a day off, and he doesn't rest until he helps you. Now, there's a flip side to this, and that is, as followers of Jesus, you and I have a responsibility to do exactly the same thing. In other words, when we see people in helpless and in hopeless situations, we should not glaze over it, we shouldn't turn our backs, we shouldn't walk away from them, we should actually enter into their mess 
and do what we can to help. Secondly, do you want to get well? If you are in a seemingly hopeless and helpless situation, often the first question that Jesus comes to us and asks us is, do you want to get well? It's not a harsh question, but it is a clarifying question because it's meant to really stir on the inside our motives and our desires. So if you're facing a challenging situation, whatever that challenging situation is, do you want to get well? I know, I do, I do, but do you really want to get well? Ask yourself this question, why do I struggle with the same things year after year after year? Have you become emotionally stuck? Have you developed what psychologists call learned helplessness? Have you gotten used to the attention that you receive from other people because of your helplessness and hopelessness? And you, do you prefer that over the risk of nobody noticing you? You know, there's lots of people that gain negative attention, and they'd rather have negative attention than no attention. So they just keep the drama going in their life. Are you a drama maker? There was nothing that the man could do to help himself into the pool, but Jesus said to him, stand up, take up your mat, and walk. In other words, Jesus invited him to do his part. Do you see that there's a moment in time when this man is laying there, and Jesus said to him, stand up? Think of all the excuses that the man could have used. But there was a moment in his time, there was just a moment where he actually tried to get up. And when he tried to get up, he found that he had a strength that he didn't have before. Now here's the point. People who want to get well do what they can on their side while trusting God for what they can't. It is uh, well known that actor Jim Carrey struggles with depression. And I recently discovered a quote from Jim Carrey. I'm not saying I'm throwing my lot in with Jim Carrey, okay? But I think he said something really interesting. He said, I believe that depression is legitimate, but I also believe that if you don't exercise, eat nutritious food, get sunlight, get enough sleep, consume positive material, surround yourself with support, that you're not giving yourself a fighting chance. There are many things in your life and there are things in my life that I have no control over. The things that you do not have control over, you give over to God. But the things that you do have control over, you need to do your part. You need to place yourself in a position of having a fighting chance. Three, what will be your response to Jesus' invitation to healing? Jesus gave the man three commands. Stand up, take up your mat, and walk. By the way, these three commands encompass the whole of the Christian life. Number one, stand up. The man could have said, Jesus, you don't understand. I've tried to do this a hundred times. I just can't do it. Don't get up my hopes again. I don't think I can take another letdown. There are some people who do not expect anything 
other than simply just being who they are because they don't want to be disappointed anymore. So here's the question. Has your expector expired? Have you gotten to the place where you're like, "Mm, I don't even want to get my hopes up anymore because I don't want to be let down? Jesus is saying to the man, believe again. Believe again for your marriage. Believe again for your kids. Believe again for your finances. Listen, believe again that you can overcome that addiction. Stand up. So I guess the question is, what do you need to start believing in again that you've let go of? Because you've become disillusioned? Because it hasn't happened yet? Because you don't want to be disappointed anymore? And you're just stuck in that spot. Jesus looks at you and says, stand up. Now you have your point. Am I actually going to believe that and take a step in that right direction? Number two, pick up your mat. You ever ask yourself why Jesus told the man to pick up his mat? I mean, the man could have walked away and left his mat there. To be honest with you, if I've been laying on the same mat for 38 years, I'm leaving it. I'm going to Mattress King or whatever the latest thing is, right? And I'm getting a new mat. Okay? That stinky thing, I'm out of here. So why did Jesus tell him, to pick up his mat. There are some things that you must commit to walk away from if you're ever going to leave your hopeless, helpless place. Because if you don't, you'll go back. There's an Old Testament story of Elisha being called by God to become the protege of of Elijah. It's very confusing to read the Old Testament, especially when you have two prophets named Elijah and Elisha. Well, Elijah was an older man, and he was tired and exhausted, and God revealed to him that he should go and tap Elisha on the shoulder and say, you're the next guy up. I'm out of here. I want you to be my follower, and I'm going to turn the reins over to you one day. And you know what Elisha did when he received that calling? Elijah was a farmer, and he had a pair of oxen. And the Bible says that Elisha broke up his plow, started a fire with the plow, slaughtered his his oxen, and fed the town. You know what that means? He threw a barbecue. That's exactly what he did. He threw a barbecue for the whole town. And then he followed Elijah. Why did he do that? Because I ain't never going back. And if I don't kill the oxen and destroy the plow, when things get tough, I may go back to to the way I used to operate. When Jesus says to the man, pick up your mat, he's saying, you don't ever have to go back there again. So here's the question. What do you need to walk away from and never go back? 
It can be an attitude. It can be a particular relationship. It can be a particular habit. Hey, how many of you know that if you don't close the door solidly on some things, the door will eventually blow back open? Number three, walk. Where did the man go after he was healed? He went to the temple to worship and to praise God for healing him. The greatest metaphor for the Christian life is journey. Because we're all walking someplace. Are you walking closer to the Lord? Or are you walking away, heading into some things that you know are going to take you further down the pathway? Remember I said about the two guys earlier, about disillusionment, about getting to a place where they renounce their faith? Everything in life is designed by our spiritual enemy to cool us off. So we must intentionally walk toward the Lord on a regular basis. We have to do our part, right? We have to literally stand up. We've got to move in the right direction, and we have to continue to move, because if we don't, there's always those headwinds blowing that will cool us off. I want to close by giving you a prayer that um, is a written prayer. I usually don't do this, but Lisa Turkhurst, which I have a lot of respect for. She runs Proverbs 31 Ministries. Um, Lisa wrote a book entitled, her latest book is, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way. And it's the story of her overcoming her husband's infidelity. And while she was writing the book, she almost died from a physical condition. But she got to the last chapter and she didn't even know how her marriage was going to turn out. They thought they were moving toward reconciliation and then her husband had a relapse. And so it was in this process that Lisa's just trying to figure out in her own hopeless and seemingly helpless situation where she can't control what's going on even in her own marriage that she writes this prayer. Father God, thank you for reminding me today that I can trust you in my weight. When my circumstances and my own weary heart beg me to believe that you have forgotten me, help me to remember that you're still very much at work. Even in the silence, even in the unknown, even when I can't see anything on the horizon, I want to trust you more and more each day, knowing that you are not only knowing that not only are all your ways perfect, but your timing is perfect too. Can you have just a little faith? to understand that God's timing for your life is perfect. And when God says no to something, that even that you want, that it's because he has a bigger yes. And can you trust the Lord enough to say, though I don't understand why certain things have turned out the way they've turned out, I'm still going to lean in rather than pull back from the Lord. And I'm going to be waiting to hear those words from Jesus. Stand up. Believe again. Hope again. Leave those things behind. Walk closer to me.
Does that make sense to you? I'm not going to have an altar call this morning. I don't have anything to hand out. I just want you to stand, not everybody, I want you to stand if this story resonates with you and you hear something inside of you stirring, saying, all right, I've given up hope in a certain area of my life. I'm going to begin again. And I'm going to believe again. Okay, I get it. I'm supposed to walk away from some things and never go back. Okay, I get it. I've been walking away from the Lord when I actually should be pressing into the Lord. If that resonates with you, stand. I don't want you to stand just because anybody else is standing. Just stand, and I'm going to pray a prayer over you. Hear the words of Jesus very clearly this morning. Believe again. Get up. Stand up. Hope again. I will not let you down. Close the door and walk away on some things. Let them go. And don't ever go back there because you'll end up in the same spot where you're at now. Walk away. Come to me. Walk toward me. Jesus, you know the story behind every person who is standing here right now. I pray that you would just simply draw close to them, that you would wrap them in your arms. And would you whisper the words in their ears that they need to hear that is specific for them? Would you love on them right now? Birth a new faith inside of them. That as they put their hand in your hand, you will help them get up and walk in a new direction. I'm going to ask everybody else to stand, if you would, please. I'd like to pray a blessing over you. Father God, I pray a blessing over every person right now. I pray that they would sense your favor and your approval and that they too would walk this journey called the Christian life and pursue you with all their In the name of Christ, I pray these things. Amen. Hey, God bless you as you go. Have a great rest of the day.